The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 123 There is no hiding from God. Ahab was flabbergasted. A prophet of God actually seemed to be forecasting something good about him. You will conquer the Syrians before the city of Ramoth Gilead, Micaiah the prophet announced to the king of Israel. Still Ahab was skeptical and wasn't sure if Micaiah was being sarcastic or not. Are you sure? He demanded, Is it really true that God commanded you to tell me he approves of my actions? What do you think? Micaiah boomed over the assembled crowd. Would God really bless the actions of an evil king? No, he certainly would not. Your servant who brought me here advised me to prophesy a victory for you. He said that all the other prophets were going to announce success, and I should say the same thing so as to not upset you. But, bellowed Ahab, do you really expect me to believe that? Micaiah went right on talking to preempt an avalanche of heated words from Ahab. God has forecast Israel's win over Syria. However, after the battle, your army will be scattered like a flock of sheep without a shepherd because they shall no longer have a leader. You should not go to Ramath Gilead. See, Ahab whispered to Jehoshaphat, I told you, this man always gives me an evil report. That is why I never consult him. Now he's trying to predict that Israel will win, but I will be killed. Micaiah carried on. I need to tell you something else. I received a vision from God in it. God was sitting on his throne in heaven, surrounded by many spirit beings. God asked if any of them would be willing to persuade you to attack Ramoth Gilead and lead you to your death. An evil spirit emerged and said he would cause your false prophets to lie to you so that you would go to battle. That is why all of your 400 prophets spoke in unison. Whenever else have so many of your various prophets and their many gods agreed on anything. But I know you won't believe me, even though I have told you that if you go, you will die. Just then, one of Ahab's holy men, the domineering prophet who wore a helmet with two pointy iron horns, strode up to Micaiah and slapped him in the face with his heavy leather shoe. The blow knocked Micaiah off balance and he had to catch himself from falling. How dare you pretend to be a prophet? bellowed the imposing figure. God's spirit works through me. If you say you have it, how did it get from me to you? Maybe it was from my shoe I just slapped you with. What do you think about that? Micaiah regained his composure as the instigator glowered at him. When God didn't immediately strike Micaiah's persecutor down, 
Many of the onlookers took this as a sign that Micaiah was the false prophet. Even Jehoshaphat seemed to wonder. God is keeping you alive at this point for some reason, Micaiah said as he rubbed his cheek. However, in a few days, you will be hiding for your life, you great deceiver. Enough! Arrest that charlatan, Micaiah, Ahab ordered his guards. Take him to Samaria and tell the city governor that I want him put in prison and fed starvation rations, bread and water only until I return from my victory in Ramoth-Gilead. Eating moldy bread and drinking dirty water is better than being dead, Micaiah answered back as he was led away. Ahab won't be coming back alive. That is a message from the true God. If Ahab does, you people will know that I am a false prophet. Hopefully, when what I say comes true, you will reconsider who the false prophets truly are. A few days later, the two kings crossed the Jordan River with their respective armies and headed toward Ramoth-Gilead, which was in the high hill countryside of Gad. The closer Ahab got to the city, the more uneasy he became. Deep down, he knew that his prophets often acted little better than cheap carnival conjurers and tricksters. Micaiah's words echoed in his head. Out of fear that Micaiah could possibly be right, Ahab devised a plan to protect himself. Instead of riding into battle on his fancy royal chariot with his family banners and insignia, he would disguise himself as a common soldier by putting on old rusty armor and riding in an ordinary rough-clad chariot. He would make his chariot driver put on old clothes too. Only his inner circle of officials would know who he really was. This way, he would hardly even be noticed, he reasoned. Go ahead and get dressed in your royal battle gear, Ahab said to Jehoshaphat. It will give courage to our men when they see you in the thick of the fight but I am going to put on less distinguishing clothes to make myself less prominent, just in case there is a small grain of truth to what Micaiah was ranting about. Secretly, Ahab was wondering if he hadn't made a big mistake by ignoring Micaiah's warning, and he secretly hoped that if the Syrians did seek to personally attack him, they might mistake the regally clad Jehoshaphat for him. Benadad, king of Syria, was well aware of the approaching Israelite army. He remembered his previous defeats at the hands of Ahab. This time, he decided a bold plan of attack was needed, calling 32 of his chariot captains, men who were veterans of many wars, he charged them. If we are to win this battle, we must be daring and go on the offensive. 
Ahab has proven himself a great fighter in the past. Make him your primary focus. Focus all of your attention on him and slay him at all costs, even at the price of your own lives. If we kill him, there is a good chance his army will fall apart. On a plain south of Ramoth Gilead, the Syrian and Israelite armies approached each other. But instead of giving direct battle, the Syrians seemed hesitant. Each time it looked like they were ready to commit, the Syrians would turn and retreat, even though it exposed their flanks and backs to the Israelite forces. This continued for some time, the Syrians prodding and poking and the Israelites and soldiers of Judah unable to force the Syrians to fully engage in battle. Suddenly, a change came over the Syrian soldiers. With a blast of trumpets, Syria's whole chariot corps charged toward the position within the army of Judah where King Jehoshaphat fought. The leading Syrian chariots pushed their way through the din of Judah's spears and shields. The dramatic and sudden attack overwhelmed the Jewish soldiers. That's Ahab! Kill him before he can get away! shouted a Syrian commander. King Jehoshaphat fought valiantly, but he was outnumbered. If God hadn't intervened, Jehoshaphat would have been killed. Just when it seemed Judah's king would be overwhelmed, the Syrians realized he wasn't the king of Israel. The Syrian charioteers halted their attack and withdrew to another part of the battlefield. Yet as the Syrians withdrew, one of the soldiers pulled back his bow and fired an arrow at random into the Israelite army. King Ahab watched with horrified fascination as the Syrians closed in on Jehoshaphat. That could have been me, he said under his breath. He was glad that he had chosen to disguise himself as a common soldier. There is no way those Syrians will be able to recognize me dressed like this, <laughs> he grinned. Suddenly, Ahab was puzzled by some wetness. Water seemed to be running down the side of his legs. Then a knife-like pain radiated from his chest. He quickly realized that the warm, sticky wetness was blood. His blood. He had been shot. There, between the chinks of his old-style armor, was an arrow shaft. And he knew exactly what it meant. Every movement of his chariot, every painful breath, Every blood-spattered cough reminded him, you can't hide from God. It had been foolish to think that he could. God could make his prophecy come true in many different ways. Micaiah was right after all, Ahab cursed. Ahab had seen many wounds, enough to know that he was not going to recover from this one. The only question was whether he would die on the battlefield or at home in bed. He knew which one he would prefer. Turning to his chariot driver, he angrily commanded, 
Get me out of here so I can bandage myself. Grabbing Ahab to hold him steady, the charioteer quickly drove to a part of the battlefield where Ahab could have his wound treated. Despite the pleas from Ahab's doctors, the king demanded to head back to the fighting. Tie me up. Prop me up. I don't care. Just don't let the men know that I have been hit until after the battle is over and we have won. For the rest of the battle, his soldiers never knew that he was held upright in his chariot by artificial means. Those who did take notice of Ahab probably just thought the third man in the chariot was an officer consulting with the king. They did not realize that it was taking the king's full effort just to remain standing, and no one noticed the pool of blood collecting on the chariot's floor. For the rest of the day, both armies remained locked in combat. Then, as the sun began to fade, the remaining soldiers from the two armies moved apart. It was about this time that Ahab died from his wound. Ahab's top soldiers then issued an order for the army to disperse back to their homes until further notice. This fulfilled Micaiah's prophecy that the army of Israel would return home from the battle like wandering sheep without a leader. King Ahab was brought home to Samaria to be buried. Once back, his servants washed Ahab's chariot to remove the blood from its floor panels. Pools of water and blood formed puddles on the ground beneath the wheels. When they were not watching, dogs came and lapped it up, fulfilling the prophecy made by Elijah that dogs would one day lick Ahab's blood because of his refusal to obey God. King Jehoshaphat was not happy, but at least he was alive. The death of Ahab shook him almost as much as his own close brush with death. Even his beautiful horse knew he was bothered. The king couldn't stop fidgeting with the reins. The thought kept coming back to him that he had come out of that battle better than he deserved. It was obvious now that he should never have made the disastrous alliance with Ahab. As the procession neared Jerusalem, a familiar-looking man walked out onto the middle of the road and yelled for the army to stop. I have a message for the king, he bellowed. Recognizing the man, Jehoshaphat asked that he be brought to him immediately. It was Jehu, a prophet of God. You may not like what you are about to hear, began the prophet. God is upset with you. He wants to know why you think it is okay to associate so closely with the ungodly and have friendships with those who hate God. Do you think you are special? That the Lord doesn't apply to you because you're a king? You know that God commands that you separate yourself from those who are against God. You also know what the law says should be done to those who cause God's people to serve idols. Are you more righteous than God? Because of your foolish friendship with Ahab, punishment is coming upon the land. 
Jehu continued, not allowing the visibly distraught Jehoshaphat to interrupt. Nevertheless, in the past you have followed God and have done a lot for your people. And most importantly, you have sought God with your heart. So God will have mercy on you for your mistake. Jehoshaphat took Jehu's warning to heart. Instead of becoming angry with God, he took the correction and set out to fix things, hoping that his good effort might cause God to change his mind about sending his punishment. The first thing Jehoshaphat did was make sure people were properly worshiping God. Some were becoming lax in their worship. Jehoshaphat's example of friendship with the idol-worshipping Ahab was evidently rubbing off on his people. He also made great reforms to the judicial system. He made sure there were judges for the people in every walled city in his kingdom. He admonished the judges to rule justly, reminding them that they represented God and administered his government over his people. He reminded them that their actions would reflect on God's reputation. He encouraged them to fear God, not man. He told them not to accept gifts from the people in order to avoid the danger of a bribe affecting a ruling. In Jerusalem, where the nation's supreme court resided, Jehoshaphat adopted reforms too. He made sure proper infrastructure was in place so that when district judges could not decide a matter, Jerusalem would be well situated to hand down speedy rulings. He made the Levites officers in the court and reinforced the authority of the chief priest. He told the priests that they would need courage to make just rulings and said God would back their decisions as long as they made them in faith and according to the law. Sometime later, Jehoshaphat received startling news. Judah was being invaded. It's the Moabites and Ammonites, sir! An excited messenger cried. They have moved an enormous army into our territory on this side of the Dead Sea. Some reports indicate that soldiers from Seir are with them too. That's only about 20 miles from here, snapped the king. Which way are they headed? To here, sir, to Jerusalem. They are following a direct course to the city. What are your orders, sir? That gives us two, maybe three days at best, calculated Jehoshaphat. Sir, what are your orders? The messenger asked again. Jehoshaphat was in deep thought. The prophet's words boomed between his eardrums. Punishment is coming on the land. Sir, your orders, sir. Shall I assemble your council? Shall I call out the auxiliaries? Send runners to the provinces? Order up all available reinforcements? The frantic messenger insisted. Yes, the king finally replied after careful deliberation. Send messengers on our fastest horses to all the provinces. Proclaim an immediate nationwide fast. Tell the people to humble themselves before God and to pray for the deliverance of the nation. Jehoshaphat had learned a valuable lesson. He understood that if he were to have victories, they must come from God. He knew that before embarking on any major decision, he needed to get God's counsel and approval. 
he might be king, but even a king must answer to a higher authority. Meanwhile, word had gotten out about the approaching armies. People began hurrying to Jerusalem. City administrators, farmers, herdsmen, metalsmiths, musicians, merchants, people from every city in Judah traveled to Jerusalem to beseech God for deliverance. Many of the people crowded into the temple. Jehoshaphat stood before the masses and was moved to lead his people in prayer. God of our fathers who is in heaven, we come to you in time of need. He cried out before a sea of bowed heads. We know that you have power over all the kingdoms of earth and that there is none that can withstand your power. You are our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land and gave it to our ancestors to be a perpetual inheritance for the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Your people dwell here and have built this temple for you. And you have said that when evil comes upon us, whether enemies threaten us or there is disease or famine, if we stand in your house, in your presence, and cry to you in our affliction, then you will hear and help in our time of need. And now the Amorites and the Moabites and men of Zair, people you would not let our forefathers destroy when they entered the promised land, have turned against us. They seek to cast us out of the land that you gave us to inherit. This great army that comes against us is too powerful for us to fight on our own. We look to you, God, for the deliverance you promised. After Jehoshaphat's powerful, earnest prayer, the people stood in silence before God. A grave feeling permeated the crowd. Then a man named Jehaziel, a Levite, forced his way to the front of the multitude and toward King Jehoshaphat. After he spoke a few short words to the king, Jehoshaphat motioned for him to address the assembly. Listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. God has heard your prayer, and this is his reply. To be continued in our next episode, and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church.